All right, my name's Matt Brocker, I think. Most of you know me. This is The Well. We're glad you're here. Uh, last week, we started a new study. We're calling it Tiny House, right? God's, it's God's tiny house on the go, right? Everybody's excited about tiny houses except for Nick. Nick, <laughs> Nick is, I can see it in his eyes. He's just shaking his head like, tiny houses are stupid, man. I can see it in his eyes. Camper, same thing, right? Kind of. So my mom just told me, my mom just told me that there's something called a granny house. It's a tiny house for grandma. I was like, that's not a thing, mom. But she said it, she said it was. Instead of putting your folks in a home, you build a tiny house for them in your yard, is what she said. I was like, I wasn't planning on putting you in a home. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Anyways. Granny house. I, I don't know. So Steve's not here to, for me to pick on him, but I don't have any property, so granny house has to go to Steve's <laughs> yard as well. I don't, I don't know what else to do with, with that. Anyways, the, the tiny house movement has swept the nation. It's all the HGTV rage and all that excitement, right? A lot of people like it. Allie really likes it, I can tell. She cheered when I said tiny house. Which is interesting. When I saw Nick's face. (laughs) 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 All right, we're moving on. Last week, the tiny house that we started talking about was the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle that God charged the Israelites to build for him so that his presence could dwell with them. And it was a, a mobile tabernacle, right? Every bit of furniture had some sort of loop on it that they could run a uh, a rod through and pick that thing up and carry it off anytime God said, hey, we're moving on, they could, they could pick up and move on with him, right? They could follow him. And so at the end of the message last week, we saw, you know, by the time we got to the end, the, the tiny house that God resides in today is, is you and I. It's, it's inside the hearts of believers, right? God's spirit dwells inside of us. That's what the Bible teaches us when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we're now the mobile tabernacle, we're, we're where he resides. And obviously, he, he dwells within us as individuals. He also dwells within the church. And, and the lives and the things that happen in our lives are what we get to willingly offer to God so that he can build the church. And he can build it nicer. He can build it bigger. He can reach more people with it. And that's what we want to do. And so tonight, you know, I've come up with a really catchy title, The Outer Court, because that's what we're going to talk about. I mean, that's catchy, right? That's going to bring people in. That's exciting stuff. The outer court is basically the outside area uh, of the tabernacle. I think, do we have a picture? Okay, so now the outer court is not outside where all those big tents and everybody's at. The outer court is the white fenced-in area and everything outside of the, the tabernacle, the actual tent right there. So the outer court is the white fence or the white wall, um, including the gate, and then there's two things of furniture that we're going to learn about tonight. Um, and when we finished last week, we saw Romans 15:4 says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Right? So Paul was talking about the Old Testament scriptures when he was talking about the hope that we can have. And then there was another guy in, in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he had the book of Isaiah open, and he's reading in it, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. 
And he, he needs somebody to come and, and help him out. And Philip shows up on the scene. And Philip looks at the same passage. And it says, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Right now, you can go to the book of Isaiah and you can't find the name Jesus anywhere. How in the world did Philip preach Jesus out of the book of Isaiah? Well, it's going to be the same way or a similar way to what we're going to see tonight because we're going to see that the Old Testament tabernacle preaches Jesus. Right? Every detail about this thing points us to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that tonight. And uh, before we get into the, the study sheet in front of you, let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll turn to Exodus chapter 27 once we get started. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this incredible picture that, that absolutely preaches your name on high. And so I just pray that you would use your word to, uh, to just touch our hearts, to move us uh, with compassion for the world that you have, to move us to share with more people, to show them you, and uh, to just picture them uh, and, and the awesome relationship that we have with you to them. And I uh, just pray that you teach us. I pray that you guide us. And I pray that you be glorified uh, through this message tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing we're going to see is the outer wall and the gate. And the first thing that we notice about this, or the first detail that we're going to look at is righteousness. And that's letter A. Righteousness. And we'll get into that in just a second. Where we see the details, the instruction that God gives Israel is in Exodus 27. He says, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, southward, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen and a hundred cubits long for one side and twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass and hooks and pillars and fillets and silver. And, and he goes on and on. And he says, And the north side's going to be the same thing. And then the, the west side's going to be a little bit shorter. It's 100 cubits by 50 cubits. A cubit is basically 18 inches. I measured, so the old, the old cubit was from the elbow to the tip of the finger. I got exactly a, an 18-inch cubit. Mine matches the, the standard. So it's, it's anywhere from 18 to 21 point something or other. Mine's spot on 18. So if you measure an 18-inch cubit, 100 equals 150 feet. 50 equals 75 feet, it's, it, it, it works out real nice. So it's like 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, it's like seven and a half feet tall, the fence that was around that thing. And, and all of these, uh, the, the fine twined linen were just not necessarily sheets, but kind of like white sheets that are hanging around the outside of it. Other times that we see this fine linen show up, we see it in Genesis 41. Verse 42, it says, Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen. And he put a gold chain about his neck. We see it again in Exodus 39. This is within the details of this tabernacle. And he made coats of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and for his sons. White, this white linen signifies holiness. It's, it's something that sets something or someone apart. You know, Joseph was given a, a gold chain and rings and all these things because it was, you know, to set him, you know, above as royalty, and then the white robe was setting him apart different than somebody else. These priests were set apart. The, the area that this tent was, or the, the walls were going to enclose 
was going to be the area that God was going to dwell in. This was going to be holy ground. Right? This was going to be set apart from everything else. It's going to look different. It's going to, it's going to be a different circumstance inside of there. The white signifies holiness, purity, righteousness. Uh, Revelation 19.8 talks about fine linen being the righteousness of the saints. Right? That's purity. It's doing the opposite of sin. Revelation 19.14, the armies which were in heaven followed upon him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. God's armies following him in heaven, coming as he comes in the second coming with him. That would be us. Right? We're going to be clothed in white, fine linen. In Mark chapter 15, verse 46, it says, he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher. This is when Christ died on the cross. He was taken down and he was wrapped in clothes of righteousness. He was wrapped in fine white linen because of who he was to those people, to, to all people, absolutely. So the wall, the wall was complete on three sides. The north side, the south, were both 100 cubits long. The west side was 50. And then on the east, there was an entrance. And, and the white represents the, the righteousness. The, the gate on the east end it represents that there's only one way in. Right? There's only one entrance into this tabernacle. Exodus 27, verses 16 and 17, it says, For the, the gate of the court shall be a hanging of, of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. And he goes on how, all the details of how they hang those, those materials. Okay, so you've got a completely, you know, the, the place is completely surrounded with white linen, and then the gate is blue and purple and scarlet and some more of the white linen, all mixed together. So it's going to stand out from the rest of it. It's going to draw your attention. You're going to know where the, the entrance is at. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Christ is talking. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Right? There's, there's one way into the tabernacle, and everybody else that doesn't take that, guess what? They're not in. Right? There's only one way to get in to this tabernacle. It's through the gate. In John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What's happening inside of the tabernacle is this is the, this is the place where God's presence is going to dwell. If you want to get to God, if you want to dwell with God, you've got to go through the gate. There's only one way in. Right? And Christ is saying, if you want to get to the Father, there's only one way in. It's through Jesus Christ. It's through him. John chapter 10, you know, what, what is a gate? It's the entrance, right? It's another word for a gate is a door. These words are interchangeable in, in some of the, both the Greek and Hebrew, they, they interchange both door and gate for different words or different usages. Uh, the One of the places that you see door is in John chapter 10. He says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold climbeth up some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. 
But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, and they know his voice, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. So he's telling this parable, the, the you know, disciples had a habit of not knowing what in the world he was talking about, and so he happily you know, gives them a little bit more understanding here in, in verse 6. It says, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Verse 7, it says, Jesus or said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, to you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Without salvation, you don't get to God. Without Jesus Christ, without going through the door, without going through the gate, without Jesus Christ being the way, you don't get to the Father. There's only one way. And one of the interesting, or several of the interesting things, I guess, would be the colors of this. Um, I didn't have any passages written down, but just... Some of these colors, what they, they signify, blue is, is, this, is this, uh, a color that represents deity or, or God. Purple is royalty. Red is sacrifice. White, we've already seen. It's righteousness, holiness, right? And where God is, is holy ground. Acts chapter 3, verse 2. And so this, you know, this gate would have been very colorful, Acts chapter two or three verse two: uh, A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. So the tabernacle eventually becomes the temple. They they travel and travel and travel till they get to the promised land. They find the spot where they're going to set it up, but they set it up permanently. Right? They build it out of stone and out of you know all all these precious metals, and and <clears throat> it doesn't move anymore. Right? Once they land and it becomes the temple, it now has a gate which they call beautiful. Right? The tabernacle had a, had a gate that was physically beautiful. It was of all these different colors. It's kind of interesting because I think our Savior is, is quite beautiful. What he's done for us, what he's gone through for us, what we're going to see and say and understand. You know, the story that Peter tells when he peeled back his flesh and all he could see was glory right we have a beautiful savior another interesting aspect of this is is the direction or the location of the gate this if you if you pay attention to some of the patterns you see in scripture god moves from east towards the west in scripture i don't know if you've ever noticed that many times you can see man moving from you know the or the opposite direction in rebellion against the Lord, west to east. Abraham went west following the commandment of God. Adam and Eve went east out of the garden. If you look where he put the cherubim, the, the angel to protect, was on the east side of the garden. They moved east out of the garden in rebellion, in sin. Cain went east of Eden to the land of Nod. Lot went east when he chose Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, the majority of the spread of the early church was from Jerusalem west into Europe. 
The sun rises in the east and moves westward all day long. Malachi tells us that the sun, capital S, of righteousness is going to come. It's going to rise in the east in Christ's return. Right? He's moving toward the west. The gate of the tabernacle was on the east side and the presence of God was on the west side. You had to enter in the east and move westward toward the presence of God. All of the details point to Jesus. So, you get to the gate, you open the gate, what's the first thing that you see? The first thing we see is the the first piece of furniture. It's called a brazen altar. The brazen altar is, is, you know, it's made of brass. That's why it's called brazen. It's a different way of saying it. The fire and brass are both connected to judgment in Scripture. So letter A is going to be judgment. So the first thing you see when you open up the, the tabernacle gate, the, the sheets, you pull them back, and you get to see judgment right off the bat. You get a picture of hell, of judgment. That's a little bit crazy, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because of sin, we can't get there from here, can we? We can't get to the presence of God in the west end of the tabernacle without dealing with our sin first. The first thing that has to be dealt with is sin. Hebrews 12.29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. And if we would try to coexist with him in our sinful state, we wouldn't stand a chance, would we? We would be consumed. Isaiah 66, verse 24 says, They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring until all, unto all flesh. The fire shall not be quenched. It's interesting that when God was telling Moses what they were supposed to do, with this offering, he told him how often to do it as well. Uh, Verse 38 of chapter 29 of Exodus. He says, Now this, that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs, the first uh, of the first year, so it's a, a, a year old lamb, day by day continually. The one lamb shall offer in the morning, the other lamb thou shalt offer in the evening. So every day, one in the morning, one in the evening, one in the morning, one in the evening, continually burning, continually showing this picture of judgment every single day. The fires of hell and judgment don't go out, right? There's, There's constant sacrifice required. Sin has to be dealt with. If you jump down to verse 42, it says, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. Right? How's God going to speak unto us when our sin's dealt with? Right? And, and the only way that our sin can be dealt with is, is through a sacrifice. And we'll get to that in, in just a minute. Matthew twenty five forty one says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Proverbs 27.20 tells us that hell and destruction are never full. The fire is not going out. Luke 16.24, this is a, a story about Lazarus and the rich man. Both of them die. One of them goes to hell. The other one goes to Abraham's bosom. 
and they can see each other. And the rich man is crying, and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. John 19, Christ is on the cross, and he says, I thirst. He's the sacrifice. Right? He's not gone to hell yet, but there's a picture there, right? Jesus is, let her be, the sacrifice. If you've read through your Bible, not necessarily looking for it, you might, you might miss the first sacrifice that we see in Scripture. Does anybody know what it is? Pop quiz, class participation, big eyes. It's before Abel. Abel's the first one where it's actually talked about. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve choose themselves, right? They, they fail the only rule they were given. And then they realize they're naked. And that nakedness just represents their shame, right? Because of their sin. And it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. How do you get coats of skins? An animal has to die for that. They, you can't live without skin. He didn't shear a sheep and you know, weave a nice jacket for him. He, he took the skins, right? He made coats of skins. Proverbs 27, 26 says, the lambs are for thy clothing. That's an interesting phrase. You see, the way that sin is dealt with is through a sacrifice. It's always been that way. Something had to give its life in order for Adam and Eve's sins to be covered up. In order for their shame to be covered, something had to die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How? Hebrews 7.19 says the law made nothing perfect. The law is what God was giving to Moses to do these sacrifices. You need to have a sin sacrifice every single day, constantly, and once a year you have one major sacrifice, the atonement. And once a year you'll be clean for the next year. And anytime you do any specific sin, I've got rules for you to come and bring that sacrifice to deal with your sin right then and there. And he says in Hebrews seven nineteen, the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. How do you get near to God? Through Jesus Christ, the better hope, the sacrifice that was actually permanent. Right? We don't have to keep doing this imperfect sacrifice over and over and over again because Christ wiped it all clean once for all. John 1.29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's not making coats of skins to cover your shame. He took it away. He's made a way. 1 Peter 1.19 says, The precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, because Christ was sinless. He had no blemish, he had no sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ was our Passover, he was sacrificed for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 
For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The first thing you've got to do when you come into the tabernacle, if you're going to get to the presence of God, is you've got to deal with your sin. And you can't do it on your own. It has to be through Christ. It has to be through the one who was the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb. So we get our sins dealt with right there as as soon as we enter. We're inside. The very next thing that we see is is something called a brazen laver. That was about it. I think it was about a year ago that I was in Albania, and I've forgotten all two words that I learned there. I'm sorry, Marisa. I don't. I know you're ashamed of me. I forgot them pretty quick. But when I was with Pastor Jeff and uh, Sazan is one of the pastors there. They would forget that I don't speak any Albanian, and Sazan doesn't really speak any English. So Jeff and Sazan would be in the front of the car and you know, just doing their thing, and so I would drift off out the window and just try to read things I've never seen before and that didn't make any sense, and I'm just like, and, and one word just kept coming up, and I was like, lavash, it's L-A-V-A-Z-H, I was like, that's like washing something, right, and I asked Jeff about it, he said, well, that's not even a, you know, a native word, that's, that's a you know, a Latin-based word. Yeah, lavar is Spanish for to wash. It was a car wash. (laughs) I was saying, I was like, I knew knew it was a car. I knew that. See, Mark? Got my Spanish word for the day, right? And and so, you know, I knew as soon as I saw this word laver, and that's something to do with washing. I'm pretty smart like that. I'm pretty quick. So letter A is washing. And, you know, we didn't even have to go through that story because he tells us that's exactly what it is here in just a second. Yeah, it's a fun story. Lavash. I don't even know if I say that right, but it sounds good. <laughs> Exodus chapter 30, we see some instruction on, on what he's supposed to do here and, and, and how they're supposed to, do, uh, excuse me, how they're supposed to use it. It says in verse 17, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass. Uh, and it's foot also of brass, okay? So if, if you're making something round, a bull, and it has one foot, I think we have to assume the foot also is round. Otherwise, it's fallen over, right? So it's got some sort of a pedestal round foot to it. Um, and he says, to wash withal. Thou shalt put, in it, or put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Well, that's extreme. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute for them, or forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout, all their, or throughout their generations. So all, all of this, you know, washing the hands, washing the feet, just reminds me of the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? And we see that in John chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. It's an interesting interaction. You know, he starts washing their feet, and, and then comes Peter. And, you know, Peter always says the, the stuff that we're kind of thinking. Anybody have one of those guys in class that just always says what they're thinking? You know what's awesome about those guys? 
They're saying what you're thinking sometimes too, and you don't have to be the one to say it out loud and have everybody go, oh, geez, here we go again. They might actually get an answer to something you wondered. Stick around, you know, and listen to those guys. They might never hear hear the answer, but you might get it. So Simon Peter comes up in verse six. It says, Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt no, hereafter. All right, he's saying, calm down. You'll figure it out later. Just let me do what I'm doing, right? Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. That c- kind of sounds similar. If you don't wash your hands and your feet in a tabernacle, you might die. <laughs> That's a little extreme. Jesus says, if, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You know, I'm, I'm jumping all in. If I, I want, I want to have a part with you. And we, we appreciate his zeal. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And he's not talking about, you know, the feet necessarily in this instance. He's saying ye, plural, you guys are all clean, except for Judas is, is the point there. So he's saying, you don't need anything washed but your feet because you're clean with all. He knew Peter was going to follow him after his resurrection. Peter was going to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter was going to be saved, man. It's, it's, he's he's going to be okay. right? He's, you, don't, you don't need me to wash you over and over again because you'll be washed in my blood. You'll be clean. You'll be saved. Revelation 1.5 <clears throat> Talks to talks about uh, at the end of the verse it says unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Right? Jesus wasn't washing them from their sins necessarily; he was washing their feet because their feet were dirty. There's a picture, right? We've we've had our sin nature dealt with. We've already come past the altar. The sacrifice was there that dealt with our sin. The blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the perfect lamb is what cleansed us from our sins. Walking around in this world, though, we get dirty. Hearing the things that we hear in this world that lie, that come against the knowledge of the truth, that that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. We need to wash that stuff away. Walking around in the world, we we get our feet dirty. The priests had to do sacrifices continually getting blood on their hands. Right? Sin gets on your hands, and you need to wash those things off. So how do we wash? Psalm 119 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How does he wash? It says, By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Right? The word of God is how you wash. And it's not just you need to memorize more scripture. You do. It's not just that you need to read your Bible. You do. He says you wash by taking heed according to thy word. Right? If you don't know what God says, how are you going to follow it? So yes, you need to read your Bible. If you're not knowing what God says in the moment when you need it, yes, you need to, you need to memorize. So that you can take heed. So that you can obey. Right? It's faith. It's following what God says that cleanses you from your sin. Cleanses you from the, the dirt of this world. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify, set you apart, and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. 
Another purpose of the laver is reflection. Right? Obviously, it's for washing. It's to wash the filth. The, the Levites, the priests that were there, they would walk around. There was no seat. You couldn't just sit down and take a rest. They were constantly working. They were constantly on their feet. They were constantly getting dirty because the ground was just a dirt floor. They needed to wash off. But they also needed to take some time for reflection. Exodus 38, verse 8 says, And he made the laver of brass, and the foot of it of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So the foot, he's, he's made out of not just brass, but the brass that was from the looking glasses of, of the women nearby, right? So they're, they're mirrors, in a sense. So as they, they stoop down to wash their hands and wash their feet, they're going to see this priestly robe they're wrapped in. They're going to see this, the ephod and, and the things that are draped over their shoulders. They're going to see all of these things that signify specific details that they're supposed to remember. They've been set apart for a specific job. And, and when they, they're washing and they're going through this routine, they're not just going through the motions because they get to look at themselves in the mirror and be reminded, oh, this is, this is a big deal. This is a bigger deal than me just going through a routine. James 1, 23 through 25 says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, or like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and he goeth his way, and straightway, right away, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So what he's saying is if you're going to come to the word of God, God's comparing it to a mirror, God is going to show you yourself. He's going to show you what he wants you to do. He's going to show you what he wants you to clean up, what he wants you to change, right? You missed a spot. <laughs> Wash that off. And if you look at it and you walk away and, and forget and you don't do what he's asked you to do, you're probably thinking, Matt, you looking the way you do it look tonight, if you looked in the mirror this morning, you're guilty of the same, right? Because this is, this is uh, the stage we call homeless beard. And I'm looking a little rough right now. I know, I saw it this morning, and I, I didn't forget. We're supposed to look into the, the perfect law of liberty. We're supposed to look into his word, and he's going to guide us. He's going to tell us what we need to do. He's going to tell us what we need to change. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Right? We're, we're supposed to look into the Word of God, see what we're supposed to change, and we're supposed to see the Savior. We're supposed to see the glory of the Lord. We're supposed to see what He wants us to look like. We should see that white robe. We should be reminded, man, I'm, I'm set apart from this world when I read in my Bible. That's what it reminds me. I'm supposed to be wearing white. I'm supposed to be different. I'm supposed to be sanctified. <clears throat> One other important aspect of this labor is that it's the only piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle that has no measurements. 
It's without measure. You see, when I come to God to wash, there's a measureless supply of forgiveness right there waiting for me. And, and God's cleansing ability through the word of God has no end. There's, there's no end to it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many times, Lord? As many times as you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> so we'll wrap up. That's the last piece of furniture in the outer court. The purpose of the outer court is, is that it's the beginning of our approach toward God. If we want to get to where God dwells, there's only one way in. There's one way, that's Jesus. To enter in, sin has to be dealt with. It has to be a sacrifice. And Christ is the perfect lamb. He was our sacrifice. And now we can enter into a relationship with the Father. If we want to go further in our relationship with the Father, to be closer to the Lord, we're going to have to wash the filth of this world off. We're going to have to wash the sins off of our hands. The Levites were warned that if they went closer to the Lord with this world's dirt on them, they would die. When we don't wash ourselves with the water of God's word regularly, we take the risk of quenching the spirit. Right? When you just live in the filth of the world, you never spend any time with God, you never wash off any of the things that this world got on you, you think you can just walk with God, you think you can just, you know, I'll just remember what I read a month ago. Well, you might remember some of it, but you need to actively wash. Because what happens is you don't even realize you're not really even walking with him anymore. You don't even know what he's up to. You don't know why the things are happening in your life are happening. You don't know what he's leading you to do. You're not even spending time to try and find out. And, and you're filthy, and if you don't know what God's up to, it's, it's basically the same as being dead, isn't it? You have no connection to the source of life. You have no connection to God. You can't even see his activity. So, a couple of questions and we'll finish here. Have you come to God his way? The way? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? You can't get in without Christ. You can't get to the Father without Christ. Have you washed lately? Are your hands and feet dirty from this world or from sin? Get in the book and wash it off. You won't get any closer to God without cleansing in his word. It just doesn't happen any other way. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're thankful for the, again, for the pictures, the, the awesome picture that, man, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the sacrifice that you paid on our behalf. We're so thankful for that. We owe you everything for that. Lord, I pray that you would put people's names and faces in our hearts and, and, and in the front of our minds right now, people that we need to, to reach out to with this message, to reach out to with the gospel, to to tell them of the only way so that they can have their 
sins dealt with as well so that they can have a relationship with the Father so that they can get in. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged by the, the pictures in the tabernacle to, to take this serious and to take it to the world. Uh, you've made us your mobile tabernacles so that we could take it wherever you want us to go. Lord, we love you. We pray that this last song is, is glorifying to you as well. In Christ's name I pray, amen.